I'm here with Dr. Eric Smith. Eric, thanks so much for being with me. Thanks for having me. I'm going to give you a proper intro when we uh, when I edit everything, but I'm hoping so that I don't have to regurgitate something that you already know back to you. Probably not as good as you could tell it. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you do? You're, I, I think you're a professor of advanced, what did you say, a, a professor of rhetoric? Yes. At your college? Yes. Uh, associate professor of rhetoric at uh, York College of Pennsylvania in York, Pennsylvania. Um, uh, recently, I wrote a book called A Critique of Anti-Racism in Rhetoric and Composition, which is uh, the um, most common term for my field. Um, and uh, the subtitle is The Semblance of Empowerment. My argument is that a lot of uh, anti-racism is said to empower people of color, when in actuality, it is uh, infantilizing and disempowering mm -hmm. uh, people of color. Um, for a few reasons that I go over in the book. So um, a lot of what I've been doing lately is that, trying to get the word out that, you know, not everybody is behind uh, contemporary manifestations of anti-racism. Not every person of color is behind it. Um, and uh, there is a, uh, there's a lot of viewpoint diversity within, you know, um, what I can call right now, uh, black intelligentsia, right? Um, I don't even, it, it, it's so diverse, I don't even like saying black, you know, I mean, it, it, that seems to um, inherently essentialize things, uh, but you get my point. Um, you don't like saying it be, because you think, because it's like you, like the people you might critique, would then be talking about black as just one thing that can be yeah. described by that word? Yeah, Nicole Hannah-Jones, I believe, said, uh, you know, there's a difference between black and politically black, right? Mm -hmm. And politically black is uh, something that, um, you know, supports critical race theory, right? Or something like that, critical social justice, uh, it's also called. And um, she said, uh, she was basically saying, you know, uh, there's real black people and fake black people, right? Um, and I'm not down with that. I, I've written in other places about the, you know, the erroneous, essentializing of people based on race. And uh, I probably, I'll probably talk about it again in the future. It's a problem. Um, uh, but yeah, I, um, it's one of the things I'm dedicated to right now, just letting people know that there is a diversity of views um, among people of the same race. From your vantage point, is it, do most people buy into anti-racism rhetoric and there's a fringe who don't, or is it opposite? or uh, something else? My field right now, and I'm going to get in trouble for this, but you could rename my field woke studies, really. Mm. Um, and I mean, it, it, and it may be a, um, you know, a small, relatively small group of people, but nobody else is really pushing back, right? So it's a, you know, um, what's the term? Uh, majority minority? You know, mm -hmm. in, in this situation, um, so nobody's really pushing back. Um, I am, but uh, and every once in a while, uh, you know, lately I've been getting more people to speak up and things like that. So uh, that's wonderful. Um, but you know, most of this time, it's been me, and um, because it's me, and because I'm black, I've been called all kinds of things um, by the um, majority minority, including white people. It's really trippy to be called a white supremacist by a white person when you're black. That is a trippy experience. 
you know, um, I have to tell you, but it, it, it happens a lot. And there are all kinds of terms now. Multiracially white is uh, the new one floating around. Yeah, it's um, when you are a black person who is against critical race theory, you really throw a monkey wrench into the narrative, right? Um, and you have to be labeled accordingly in order to, you know, for them to make sense of your existence. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have to squeeze me into one of the pre-made roles they have in this narrative, the whole race traitor bit and all the synonyms for, uh, for that. Um, obviously, I'm not that, but uh, they have to cast me as that in order to uh, perpetuate the narrative. So um, black people and white people enjoy throwing around white supremacists and multiracially white uh, for those reasons. Boy, so um, there's so much I want to ask you, and I can't think of the right order to do it. So I'll just start somewhere. Um, when you're, could could you lay out some of the reasons that you think <laughs> you gave a few right there just tacitly, but maybe some of the key elements, perhaps that you've written about or that are in your book that you think are wrong with anti-racism, and then also what you know what's the fundamentally kind of right perspective that people have? Because I, I mean, it doesn't come out of nowhere. There are definitely um, disparities. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious to see how you reconcile that in your mind. And then, then I'd love to hear about how you sort of have counter rhetoric to, to combat the, you know, the, the flaws of those stories. Right. Well, in the book, I talk about something called the primacy of identity, um, which has several components. One is uh, racial essentialism, which I uh, talked about uh, already. Um, another one is, you know, um, neglecting context, right? Um, you define things a certain way based on power dynamics. You know, um, everything's about, you know, the white oppressor and the people of color being oppressed, not looking at uh, particular situations and acting accordingly, which is something rhetoricians are supposed to do, right? Mm. That's basically a, 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 a primary component of being a rhetorician. Um, so there's that. I, I want to, I mean, I, I don't talk about that one enough, actually. Um, a lot of uh, anti-racist activists, um, you know, uh, of various colors want to find some kind of like panacea, some magic bullet that fits every situation. And I think that's a mistake and it, it, it makes for a lot of the problems going on right now. Um, uh, I wrote a piece for Newsweek on the whole idea that impact is always more important than intent, right? Mm. Um, And often it is, but not always, right? And that is a case-by-case situation, that is a context-by-context situation. And um, as much as we, uh, as long as we avoid gauging context and acting accordingly, we're going to make mistakes like that. You know, um, everything is going to be considered um, a microaggression, regardless of the situation or the context. Um, There's also an issue of prefigurative politics. And um, what I mean by that is uh, prefigurative politics is, um, you know, when you uh, try to act out the world you want to see, right? So Occupy Wall Street, there are the the camps and things like that. There were uh, unilateral leadership and things like that. Um, You know, uh, certain meetings, uh, you know, libraries and things like that. That's the the, um, world they want to see. And they're actually acting it out. They were living it. Um, but the thing is, they were living it uh, with the idea of creating strategies for bringing it about in the real world. 
Um, mm. What happens a lot in anti-racist circles is that they just settle for the make-believe, right? There is no real intention of, you know, uh, creating the world in this way. There's no real strategy, no real uh, tactical steps to get there. They're just all about the performance. They're all about the bubble where everything's okay here, you know? Um, and I think that's part of it too. So, you know, a lot of people have called, um, you know, uh, a lot of uh, contemporary anti-racism performance art, you know, for that reason, right? Uh, a lot of what they're doing is symbolic, right? They're not really getting things done. Bill Maher had a joke the other day, like uh, China will build a bridge in a week and Americans will argue over what to call it, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah, what to right. name the, the, the bridge. So it's all about sim, uh, symbolism and, and group esteem and dignity, right? It's not really about creating concrete change. It's about feeling better, right? It's about feeling powerful when you haven't felt powerful in a long time, right? Um, but obviously, you don't need to do all this to feel powerful. You don't need to, um, you know, uh, consider white people or the country irredeemably racist you know, to, to do that. Uh, they're taking this strategy for whatever reason, um, uh, because it's a, um, it's their odd misinterpretation of critical race theory. Um, it's their embrace of um, people like Robin DiAngelo and to an extent, uh, Ibram Kendi, who I don't think uh, is completely wrong, but has some erroneous views that I think are pretty dangerous. Um, yeah, now I'm rambling, but, um, you know, that, that, that seems to be what's going on as well. This is an esteem movement in a lot of ways. You, you haven't touched yet, or you haven't mentioned that you think that these ideas or the pain that people feel or the things that they're fighting for are wrong or bad. You've mentioned the, the tactics used to deploy the message are the, the thing that you have difficulty with. Is that fair to say? Uh. Yeah, yeah, it's fair to say. I mean, let's take critical race theory, for example. It's not, I mean, there are a lot of good things about critical race theory, right? Intersectionality is a good concept, originally conceived, right? Uh, when Kimberly Crenshaw coined that term, she was talking about the fact that no one is one thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. If you're trying to get to the bottom of a particular case, um, you have to look at that person's intersections and how that may play into that person's situation you know, makes total sense, right? Um, Anti-essentialism was an original idea of critical race theory. Um, you know, and, and you can't just look at somebody uh, and think you know them because they're a part of a group. That was the part of the original concept of critical race theory. That sounds um, so counter to what I understand critical right, race theory to be, okay. Right, which is why and, and I've been guilty of this, which is why it's kind of a misnomer to call what's going on now critical race theory. Um, mm. At best, it's a bastardization of critical race theory. For example, um, intersectionality um, is now used not as, you know, I just defined it, but as a marker of ethos. You know, right. uh, it determines who's allowed to speak and who isn't. It determines who is the, um, you know, expert at things. And, and, and who isn't? Who's the bad guy and who's the good guy in the narrative, right? Um, so that's not what it was supposed to be. Um, Mari Matsuda, um, and, uh, one of the original critical race theorists, um, extends the idea of intersectionality uh, when she says, 
ask the other question. What she means by that is, if you see something that is sexist going on, look for the racism too, right? Mm -hmm. They may be overlapping in that situation. And if you see something racist, look for the sexism, look for the classism or, or, or whatever. And um, just to be cognizant of intersectionality. That's been twisted into one of uh, Robin DiAngelo's favorite tenets. It's not that whether or not racism happened, it's how it manifested in this situation, right? right. So that's, that's kind of a bastardization of what Masuda was talking about. Anti-essentialism, right? Um, is different now too. You may have all these intersections, right? But you're essentially a victim or you're mm. essentially a, uh, an oppressor, right? Mm. And uh, you are forever cast as those roles. And if you don't embrace them, you're not authentic, right? So all these, you know, um, these uh, erroneous twistings of critical race theory are now being called critical race theory today. Uh, and that's a mistake. So critical race theory is actually what it is now. I guess the, the version of critical race theory that you're talking about, you could hardly call it anti-essentialism because it, it casts people in essential archetypal roles right. and a finite number of them. Mm -hmm. And um, but and I suppose that is how someone like you, it, it, in a way, it's not fully essentialism because otherwise you would just be the role of a victim, right? As a black man, but but you are able to uh, put yourself in a different archetypal category by speaking out against the idea of critical race theory. Well, I I try, you know, um, people will still cast me in their narrative. They'll still you know project certain characteristics onto me to maintain that narrative, right? Um, so when I ask a question, you know, um, to my colleagues, follow up questions after a presentation or something like that, I'm trolling. Somebody else is asking a question. Eric Smith is trolling, right? Mm. Uh, so they have to, they have to, uh, you know, bend over backwards to really turn me into uh, somebody I'm not, which is a tactic for silencing me. Right, which is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I mean. They, yeah. they haven't they haven't figured out that the more they do that, the more I talk. <laughs> they, the louder I talk. They haven't figured that out yet, which is hilarious. But why are you why are you brave enough to do that? I mean, I, you seem to be a person who just follows your convictions and yeah. common sense and reason. Um, I mean, it, are you like this with every hot button topic that you have? reasonable doubts about? I mean, is there a reason that you're more brave than other people, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask. Um, well, I mean, tenure helps, right? Mm. So I, you know, I'm not going to uh, lose my job if I say these things. But also, I mean, I've been noticing this stuff for a long time. Um, and I've been, you know, pushing back to some degree uh, since I was a kid about a lot of these things but then i stopped doing it and i i, I tried to focus on other things that i was interested in career-wise right i um i had no interest in you know um critical race theory um at all you know um from a scholarly standpoint you know i didn't so i was focusing on those um other things um i i was once a diversity officer slash trainer so i mean i it's not like i was totally divorced from it um, but I didn't, I didn't want to do it as, you know, uh, part of my scholarship. I didn't want to be a scholar of race, right? 
Um, but then March 19th, 2019, I, I marked this day. It's, it's, it's a very special day um, because that's the day I decided to um, uh, comment on a keynote address given at a, uh, a, a flagship conference in my field uh, that talked about, you know, uh, the fact that uh, whiteness is a problem, um, white teachers are inherently a problem, and, um, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, people of color are being victimized just by the presence of white people. How infantilizing is that? Mm -hmm. so, yeah, um, exactly yeah. the word. Yeah, so I, um, so I said, is this the right way to do this? You know, in a listserv uh, for my field. And the response changed me. Um, I was working on a book at the time. And I, once I got the blowback from black people and white people alike, um, you know, um, twisting my words, um, not listening to me, saying things, saying I said things that I didn't, saying I did things that I didn't, strange stuff. I mean, the proof that I didn't say that was in the listserv. Right, you can just scroll down and see that I didn't say it. I mean, right. it was it was it was insane, right? And I I was writing that book, and I said I have to revamp this book. I have to write about uh, you know this uh, this disempowering uh, anti racism, and I do not recommend totally revamping a book with like I, I was just going to say that <laughs> yeah. The oh, a couple of months I, left. Oh my god. I I I went insane. I, I almost burned my apartment down. I'll bet, right? especially because your, your world was just turned upside down. Yeah, you know. So I, I was, I, I was so, you know, um, dedicated to writing this book. Like relationships fell apart. I mean, I was, I was, you know, I had to, <laughs> I had to finish this book. I had to, I had to write this book. Now I had to respond to this. You know, I was not going to stay silent. So that book became a critique of uh, anti-racism and rhetoric and composition. Mm. And um, you know, I, I mean, I looked through it. I looked through it for the first time um, since I published it, um, like last week or something, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I, I'm gonna write another book where I can parse this out a little bit more. I didn't have enough time, you know. Um, I'm gonna be a little clearer. So that's what I'm doing now. I'm working on a, a um, book that um, better explains or more thoroughly explains um, empowerment theory, which I use in the book as kind of an alternative take on um, anti-racism um, and uh, you know it, it's really empowerment right as opposed to the faux empowerment that's being for uh, um, contemporary anti-racist act um, empowerment theory uh, comes from Mark Zimmerman uh, this um, social worker Judith A.B. Lee um, and, and, and others and um, it has three components the intrapersonal the interactional and the behavioral um, and the intrapersonal is about, you know, uh, being mindful, um, you know, um, you're having your own self-efficacy, your own positive self-regard, knowing your strengths and weaknesses and things like that. Um, you know, being uh, self-aware, being able to self-manage, right? So there's a lot of emotional intelligence going on in here, um, even a lot of uh, rational emotive behavior therapy, right? Um, but as a rhetorician, I'm basically saying is how you talk to yourself. How do you right. use it on yourself? Um, and then the second part is the interactional. How do you interact with other people once you've, you know, done that? 
Um, how do you collaborate? How do you gauge a situation and act accordingly? Um, and then the behavioral is how do you collaborate with other people to get things done, right? So you have to have all three to be truly empowered. Um, and I think what happens with, with a lot of diversity training, right, even if it's not CRT-based diversity training, if, even if it's not based on, you know, the concept of implicit bias and things like that, the problem with a lot of, um, um, you know, diversity training is that it starts with the interactional. It starts with the how do we, you know, uh, get along. It, it, it skips the how do we get along with ourselves part, you know. Um, Which means then that it's uh, the idea of changing or the this story is on the presenter's terms. You know, you could tell someone else's story about themselves, but in your own terms, if you're a presenter or, you know, teacher of critical or, or of uh, diversity training. Is that what you mean? Um, well, um, I'll put it I'll put it this way. Um, if you have if you don't have a strong intrapersonal component of empowerment, and you go into you know um, a community where you you have to interact or like a diversity training or something like that. Right. You don't have that secure base yet, so right. you're showing up defensive, right? You're showing up you know wanting to protect something, right? Um, you're you're not you're not uh, secure or self aware enough to really put yourself into the situation. So if you're skipping that, then you're kind of doomed before you begin, right? Right. Right. Uh, so, so that's what I mean. So, you're, if you're skipping the interpersonal, it it, it makes for uh, a uh, cantankerous interactional, right? Mm. Um, and obviously, you know, the behavioral will suffer as well. The behavioral component of empowerment is there to make sure things don't get too prefigurative, right? Um, we don't just right. uh, rely on the performance in our little bubble. We actually get things done, right? Um, in my next book, I'll be talking about um, how to uh, apply the behavioral component to pedagogy, to teaching, um, and, 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 and things like that. So, so yeah, it's an ambitious project, um, uh, but uh, hopefully it'll be out in 2022. Oh, man, I'll, I'll eat that up immediately. <laughs> so what you're talking right now about an empowerment model. I uh, have a program called the Life Process Program, and the entire thing is basically an empowerment model. Uh, inspired by cognitive behavioral therapy and, as you say, REBT kind of. And, of course, you get the charge pretty easily early on if people don't give you the benefit of context. You're a pick, you're up by the, pick yourself up by the bootstraps kind of a person. Yeah. Um, in a way, you kind of have to be, but only to the extent that you can have a reasonable identity, you know, a reasonable sense of yourself and what your skills are and what your resources are. And, Motivation. So uh, I said before we were recording that everything that you say sort of maps on to my idea of what it means to empower people. And uh, conversely, everything that you say about infantilizing people sort of maps on to the way that I see it, too. You have the addiction field where, of course, you had a, a complete moral model. You're a total failure of morality. And as a human, if you're addicted to something and it's addiction always means drugs. OK, so we give it. There's a new model, it's the disease model. If you take drugs in, in excess and you have problems, well, you're diseased. And so that sounds like the nice liberal progressive sort of track to go on because it's not so judgmental. My argument is that, well, that actually infantilizes people. It actually has very net destructive harms to tell people that they have no agency over you know, their own lives, behavior, and the choices that they make, or that something like a drug is necessarily going to infect you. It has an ineluctable draw 
that sounds like everything you're saying. Um, you can't force someone to, I guess, um, when it comes to something like medication assisted therapy for addiction, you can kind of force someone to give them a, a false choice to swallow a pill. In your case, you're saying people can swallow an ID. You can force people to swallow an ideology. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 So in the same way that I, I'm trying to make a push along with others to sort of correct this story that we have wrapped around everything that comes with drugs and addiction, um, you're trying to correct that story too and get people tools and actually empower other people in order to teach it properly or teach it in a way that at least isn't going to be completely destructive. I'm, I want to believe that that's, that there's reason to be optimistic about all of that. Um, do you feel optimistic or do you just feel maybe it's like something you have to do? Um, well, I, I want to make sure I'm clear on the question. Am I, am I optimistic about pushing back on things in general? I mean, um, I'm doing a lot of pushing back for similar reasons about similar rhetoric and I'm daunted you know, by, I don't think that the story about drugs and addiction is going to change in my lifetime. I'm curious if you feel that sort of sense of pessimism about the efforts that you're putting forward, or if you're more optimistic than I am. I, I, I guess I would say I'm more optimistic. That's um, good. There's, yeah, there's, um, you know, people are starting to speak up, right? Um, you know, people are getting uh, courageous and speaking up. Parents about the uh, manifestations of, um, uh, CRT-based anti-racism in schools, right? Uh, there are states that are, you know, trying to pass uh, uh, laws to ban CRT, not as a theory, but as a definite conclusion, right? Mm. As as a uh, you know a, a, a overarching ideology, right? Um, so that's happening, and some um, states are succeeding um, with that. So. So if people are starting to emerge, pushback is starting to emerge and there is power in numbers and uh, the numbers get bigger and bigger every day. So I am hopeful. Um, I don't know exactly how things are going to play out. Um, I don't know how my field is going to look in 10 years, you know, um, but I don't think it's going to, I don't think, um, you know, what we're calling CRT you know, um, in education and in academia is going to just, you know, go forth untouched. Right. You know, there will be a challenge. Do you think it's unstable? Like the, it's, it will necessarily kind of fall apart? Yes. Um, well, in, in certain situations, yeah. And in, in, um, in my field, I mean, I, I'm so, I feel so bad talking specifically about my field, but I mean, they should have behaved better. You yeah. Know? You know, now it's, it's too bad. You know, I'm going to start telling people the absurdity that's, that's going on. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you um, a quick story that happened very recently. Um, a leader in the field, the same person who gave the speech that I critiqued on March 19th, 2019, that changed everything, right? Um, put something on his blog that said, um, you know, uh, one of the large organizations in my field, the Council for Writing Program Administrators, um, behaved in a racist manner towards him and his ad hoc committee that was put together uh, 
by basically the CWPA um, to make recommendations on um, how to implement anti-racism in um, you know, their writing outcomes, right? The um, suggested outcomes that all professors of writing uh, should abide by. Um, they wanted to make sure that they uh, weren't being inadvertently racist. Hmm. So um, this person and the committee that he was chairing uh, put forth some suggestions and he said the response was racist. That's all he said. He didn't say how it was racist. He didn't say what was said. He said it was racist. So I said, oh, I should, I'm leaving out a very important part. Uh, he said, because it's racist, he is going to boycott the organization and he recommends that we do too, right? Um, let's all boycott this organization for being racist. He never said what was racist. Mm. So I said, if you're gonna ask me to boycott a major organization in my field, I'm gonna need more information, right? I'm, I'm gonna sign a petition, you know, because you said so. I'm like, tell yeah, me enough. what happened. And okay, so once I did that, you know, now I'm a Nazi and, um, you know, I needed to, uh, uh, you know, be silenced or, or, or something like that. Um, I was accused of demanding um, proof in writing. I didn't do that. I was just like, what happened? That's all I asked, what happened? Um, so that happens. And then another organization in my field um, post something demanding that the CWPA apologize and don't be defensive when doing it. We still don't know what happened, right? But this, this other organization with its own executive board decided to put that out. Wow. Then finally, the CWPA came out with its own um, response, basically apologizing in the vaguest of terms right, um, in ways that almost didn't really say anything other than we're sorry and we're going to try to do better, right? And this all speaks to the absurdity of uh, anti-racism in my field. Um, so hmm. obviously I, I pushed back on that. Um, I basically said um, as loudly as I could in a listserv, that you're, you know, uh, this is due process is not inherently racist, right? You know, right. Um, asking what happened is not, you know, the uh, trait of a colonized mind at all. What's more, um, they are not here concerned for BIPOC, right? Black, indigenous, people of color, right? They're here for certain kinds of BIPOC, BIPOC of certain ideologies and other ideologies are left out. Other BIPOC are left out because they're multiracially white or something like that. So we'll see what happens now, but that, that is, that's the kind of thing that's going on in my field and that's gotta stop. So um, the, your question was that, you know, uh, is this sustainable? I mean, that line of reasoning can, I mean, you, you, you can't do that. I mean, this is, we're academics, right? We're academics. We, we do research, we appreciate research and things like that. A lot of people 
push back with the idea that, um, you know, we, we know something happened, right? Because somebody said it happened. And we've done the research, you know, in critical race theory and, 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 and things like that so that we know what happened. Critical race, doing that research makes you knowledgeable for sure. It doesn't make you psychic, right? right. I can't still see need, right. you know, we still need to know what happened, right? But to question a person of color who said that racism happened, that is in itself racist. That's a sign of right. white fragility. Right? And have you seen anything like this before? Other kinds of rhetoric that are just wrapped around society this way, where you can't do any wrong by saying a few keynotes and you can't do any right by opposing the keynote, those, those kinds of things? Uh, besides um, the Salem witch trials and the Spanish Inquisition, I, I don't, not really. Yeah. I don't know. The reign of terror. A lot of a lot of rose pierres running around these days. And well, I, I mean, I ask you because I'm not. You know, it's funny. I, I mentioned that I'm I'm late to the party when it comes to actually giving this critical thought, real critical thought, not critical race theory thought. And I, it's so um, ironic that it's in part due to all of the privileges that I have. Now I I work to deserve, even if that can't fully be realized, every single privilege I have, whether it's you know financial or you know, the, my environment or, or the color of my skin, whatever. Uh, but I haven't had to think too much about this because I just sort of sign on the dotted line for people who say that they're on the right side of justice. And so now that I'm listening to you, John McWhorter, uh, Glenn Lowry, Coleman Hughes, people who are, you know, on the wrong, quote unquote, side of the aisle ideologically, but who are also BIPOC, who are speaking out against this kind of rhetoric, I wonder... Jesus, what else have I been missing? You know, what else have I not been given reasonable thought to? How often does this happen that I'm just sort of settled in with a story and I, I just like to think it's nice to have stability in my mind, but really that's just not how the world works. It's kind of nice and kind of horrifying at the same time that you say the only thing that you've seen that sort of compares to this are things like the Salem Witch Trials and you know, the tur turbulent times in history. Yeah, I, I really haven't seen anything like this, you know, not not to this scale anyway. So, uh, so what's what's an ameliorative kind of track that we could be on? You know, when you say that you're you're um, talking about how to teach properly, teach in a way that can be responded to and thought about um, the concerns that people have. What does that look like to you in the best case scenario? Um, regarding teaching specifically teaching, but I'm talking about the, the issues that people bring up related to, you know, that are answered by critical race theory or anti-racism, the anti-racism movement. Um, I mean, obviously there's just a more parsimonious, better way of thinking about these issues and potential solutions for them, thinking about who's affected, what do mm -hmm. we do, how do we treat each other? And it's just not, that's none of that logic is seeping through it seems like you have an idea about how to be more constructive about this. And I'm curious. I'm really about. embracing, I'm really embracing empowerment theory mm. uh, regarding that um, because it's, it's kind of a, it, it transcends race to a large degree. What I mean by that is, you know, um, you will be better able to deal with uh, race situations if you take things contextually. 
You know, you can't create this, um, you know, one mode of diversity training and apply it to every situation. It's a bad idea. You have to gauge that situation and act accordingly. Um, the, the intrapersonal uh, component of empowerment um, can be strengthened, which, which benefits everybody, right? Um, whether you're talking about race or not, it benefits everybody. Then you're better able to um, gauge a particular uh, community, right? Um, understand them, interact with them, and act accordingly. For example, um, you know, compose a diversity training that is specific to the dynamics of this particular workplace, right? Or this particular school, mm. right? And, um, and the behavioral component, it, it forces what's called reality testing, right? You're not, you're not, um, you know, uh, you, you're not projecting things onto the world, right? That aren't really there, right? You're not ignoring statistics because they don't back your narrative. Right, right, right. Um, it's, it's outward facing, the behavioral component. You're, you're actually trying to get things done in society. So you have to collaborate in order to get things done. The pedagogical manifestation of behavioral, of the behavioral component of empowerment is problem-based learning, right? You, you see a real problem with real stakeholders in a real place. And, you know, your students either individually or in groups work to figure out how to solve that problem, right? Um, so, you know, now it's, and, and um, you know, it, it's been written that this is, actually very good for dealing with um, uh, multiculturalism because people have to work together, right? They have to understand each other. They have to figure out how to best bond, right? Um, and you don't have to like somebody to bond with a person. I mean, if it's about um, a project like this, you know, um, you're, you're actually trying to get things done in the real world, right? Um, my field is uh, what's uh, something big in my field right now that I'm, you know, I'm behind for the most part, is um, linguistic justice, right? Not looking down at somebody because they don't speak in the dialect you prefer. Mm. They don't speak in a dialect that is deemed standard. Um, I'm all for that. Can but you give me an not, example of that? Um, African-American vernacular English. That's what I was thinking. So yeah. like, like just code switching yeah. between, okay. Oh, no, 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 code switching is racist. You can't. <laughs> Post switching is racist. You can't do that. You have to, you, that person needs to always speak the way um, they speak, which is, I'm fine with that, with that part of it. I'm not mm. fine because um, now the idea that, you know, um, you know, teaching and expecting students to write in a standardized form of English in a classroom setting is inherently racist, right? Um, so and that's- You're talking about post-secondary? setting or just any school post, setting? Uh, well, I've only seen it post-secondary, mm. but uh, I don't know how it's manifesting in you know uh, middle schools and high schools and things like that. Um, but I, I have some issues with that um, to a large degree. And uh, I have some issues with that because, you know, writing is different from speaking in a lot of ways. Speaking is immediate, you know, um, there are paralinguistics, uh, going on, you know, there, there are other ways to interpret what somebody's saying, body language, things like that. But writing is for an audience deferred, right? You're, you're writing um, for uh, people you may never meet, right? 
Um, and, you know, you do well to gauge to the best of your ability um, what dialect will be most effective here. Because like problem-based learning and behavioral component of empowerment, you're trying to get something done, right? Right. right. You know, you're trying to get something done with this writing. You're trying to um, persuade people to do something or think something, right? So you have to act in a way to meet them where they are, or write in a way to meet them where they are, right? Um, and that, that's what's beautiful about uh, problem-based learning, because if you're doing a recommendation report for a, uh, a real group of stakeholders who have a problem that you are trying to solve, um, more, more than likely, they're going to expect a version of English deemed standard, right? More than likely. So it, it might be good to make sure that students have a firm grasp of that standardized English. Um, it's really that simple. But that, what I just said, that perpetuates whiteness and is therefore racist. That's so interesting. So what you're really basically saying, speak the way you speak and to the extent that we can understand each other, right. whatever. I mean, when it comes to writing, you're writing usually, I mean, if you're a reasonably good writer that people want to read or if you're actually writing to solve some sort of a problem, you're going to have to be not only coherent, but you have to be, you're sort of writing in the same quote unquote languages, the same structure. Uh, it's almost like music. I was talking to a, a person I used to play music with recently and we had a band. I live in Vermont where we're 97% white, but our band was uh, every color of the rainbow. We had gay men and women and it was so interesting. And we none of us ever really thought about that. It wasn't like, that wasn't like the, uh, what would you call it? Performance art. We weren't trying to do that. It just happened. And he and I were having a conversation about how interesting that is that that happened. And we come from so many different cultural backgrounds, but we just played music and music is sort of that language we all vibe to. You, and you can't just like play a wrong note because in, you know, culturally or something like that, you'd play music differently. We have to agree on something and put it out there to an audience who wants to hear it. And that sounds like what you sort of mean in writing. Right. Right. I mean, that, that's, that's an interesting analogy. I like that. I may use that if you don't Great. mind. No, I hope you do. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's tricky, right? I mean, even, I mean, if you're giving a speech, you know, um, I don't think you have to um, speak in a certain dialect to get your point across. Unfortunately, right. there are people in the audience who will judge you based on that. And that is a problem. And we should work to remedy that. Um, who knows? Languages change all the time. Maybe in, you know, um, you know, the next generation, you know, um, acceptable, English deemed acceptable, right, uh, in uh, civic and professional spaces will, you know, um, lean more towards African-American vernacular English, right? Maybe that will happen, and that's fine, you know, because uh, languages change organically like that, and that's a good thing. Um, but to ignore the world that is, you know, uh, because you're being too prefigurative, right? Mm. Uh, to ignore the world that is because, you know, you want the world you want to see, right? Um, that's not wise. I'll just put it that way. Um, and saying that's not wise is considered uh, a perpetuation of white supremacy. What do you see that... 
either that have already played out this way manifestly or are potential second order harmful consequences to doing nothing about this or not pushing back? Um, well, academia becomes church, basically, right? Um, like I said before, if I ask a follow-up question after a presentation, it's considered trolling, especially if it's a difficult question, hmm. right? You're just supposed to clap and say, hey, thank you, or, or the questions you ask are some version of, how can I be more like you, you know, or something like that, you know? Um, that's what it will turn into. I mean, think about it. If you go to church and the pastor is speaking, you don't stand up and say, I don't agree with your interpretation of Matthew 3.16. You know, you, you, don't, you don't do that. Right? right. That's just that's more than frowned upon. You, you just don't do that. Now, academia is becoming like that, mm. you know, and uh, I guess if there was no pushback, we'd end up in that kind of situation. So the people would have nuanced problems that they would like to be solved, but are, as you say, disempowered to even bring them up, bring them forward. Uh, no. Yeah. I mean, this is all speculation, right? I mean, I don't you know, I don't know. Some people. We'll go as far as to say that it's, you know, um, you know, contemporary anti-racism is already a religion, right? Mm -hmm. um, and more than one person has said that. But, I mean, I'm starting to see it manifest in, in my field right now, and it's, um, it's really disappointing. Have you seen people be silenced who really are doing important work? I just witnessed a lot of this. People who are not only silenced, but now are worried that in their field are no longer able to really do much of anything. Whereas before they were some, some of the best collaborative problem solvers in the field that I knew. Um, and even though there are probably a majority of people that they work with or for or among who believe that these people are doing good and they want to collaborate with them, it's just so, uh, you know, dissenters have to be ignored or, you know, can't be acknowledged. So people are worried to work with them. Have you seen this happen in real time to real people? And uh, do you have any examples of it? I mean, you, you are a good example of it, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> me. Um, and I don't, I think if people work with me, I, I, I've been told I'm on a no site list, right? Don't cite Eric Smith's work. Hmm. I've been told that. I haven't seen this list, so I, I don't know for sure. But I don't, I don't think the person who told me, the people who told me, um, would lie about that. Um, so, I mean, there's that. Um, I guess it would be kind of dangerous for, um, you know, a non-tenured um, scholar to work with me in some way, right? Um, definitely you know, graduate students or um, people who aren't even on the tenure track, it may be a little dangerous for them to do so. So I understand if they want to distance themselves from me at this point, I don't care, right? I mean, if, uh, you know, if I'm going to be locked out of scholarly publications and journals and things like that, you know, I'll just write my books and write my op-eds uh, that get circulated farther anyway, mm -hmm. right? And don't take a year and a half to come out. Right. You know, so I'm, you know, I'm okay. I mean, if you don't want to pander to a broken academia, whereas you could get actually you're, you're kind of modeling self empowerment where you can get your word out to more people who are interested in, in listening to you. Exactly. Otherwise. Exactly. So, yeah.
What are your thoughts about people who are, let's say, your grad students or people who might have apprehension about working with someone like you or someone like me or someone who um, refuses to accept the narrative? Um, someone, let's say, in K through 12 education who, who is supposed to give an anti-racist training to their students but who thinks that what they're saying is dogmatic and potentially destructive and, you know, um, stymieing good communication, but who but who feels like, you know, speaking up at all could have horrible consequences for them. Do you have advice for someone in that situation? I'm sure you've thought about this. Um, juxtapose what you're talking about with um, uh, people of color who are um, pushing back against it, right? Who are saying something that is antithetical. Uh, to that uh, ideology you feel like you're being forced to uh, to uh, perpetuate. Mm. Um, I have, I and a, a few other people have um, uh, recently launched a website and a compendium, a list of uh, um, uh, black scholars, activists, writers uh, with various viewpoints called uh, Free Black Thought. Uh, and, um, you know, you can just Google Free Black Thought and it'll, it'll pop up. I can also put it in the chat if you want. Um, but, you know, uh, having something like that and the um, uh, manifesto that just came out, um, that Persuasion uh, just published recently, um, just, just having that available for students, just to give them a, um, you know, a holistic idea of what's going on with these things, that can help, right? So I, you know, and, and that's why, op-eds, publishing op-eds and things like that is so valuable because it's immediate, it's there, it's easily accessible. And it's proof that not everybody's on board with this, right? You can just call a, a white person who's not on board with it racist, right? That's done. Right, over, right, right, right. It's a little harder for me. I mean, you could st people call me racist against black people, but uh, it's a little harder to um, be convincing about that, especially when I say I'm doing this not you know, to, uh, you know, cater to white people, but to make sure black people stop being infantilized, you know, yes. when that's my main thesis, you know, it's hard to turn around and say, oh, he's being racist, right? It's harder anyway. Um, they still do it, but, uh, but it's more difficult. Um, so yeah, just uh, try, try, to, try to get away with pairing what you're doing with um, some uh, counter thoughts. I feel like I'm so um, fresh into the conversation that my mind is being blown every day now that I read or listen to something like this. It really is embarrassing. So I'll go back to like, uh, I'll look at a video or a podcast or an article written in like 2013 and think 2013, I was, you know, I'll be marching with the Black Lives Matter. And to, and so I just, it's just not something I've given a second thought. It's um, so I don't know if I'm asking good questions that really um, will really help people understand what you're about and understand the dynamics of the situation. Maybe I am because then maybe they're just as naive and ignorant as me. Do you think that I've left anything out uh, of our conversation so far that, that we should get into? Um, I don't think so um, at the moment. No, no. I mean, it's, Okay, maybe. Um, let's talk about this concept of America 
the world, the Western world anyway, being irredeemably racist, mm. right? That's very convenient for the D'Angelo's and Kendi's of the world, right? Kendi has gone as far as to say we need a department of anti-racism, you know, a government, federal department of anti-racism. In order to justify a department of anti-racism, you need racism, right? <laughs> it's in his best interest that this never goes away. Right, right. Now, uh, now that is, you know, technically kind of an ad hominem argument on my point part, right? Um, so I'm not saying, you know, um, they're grifters. I'm not, right. I'm, not determined, I'm not making that definite conclusion that they're grifters, but it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's something it, yeah, it's worth, in about. any other field, if you have that predicament, then that's worth talking about. It's fair to discuss. Yeah. Right. right. So, Actually, you know, now that you bring it up, shouldn't it not be convenient for D'Angelo? Um, she's a white woman talking about how America is irredeemably racist. Uh, and if you're white, there's something in your DNA that makes you racist that you, know, you must continue to apologize for forever. I mean, you'll never absolve yourself of it. It doesn't, I suppose it's beneficial for her because of all the money that she's making doing this. Yeah. <laughs> It's not, uh, it doesn't, well, I don't know. It it doesn't seem like it's a winning game for her, though, in oh, terms of status. It's a winning game for her bank account. Yeah. You know, and what's she making, 15000 a, 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 a an event now? Or? I suppose so. And by the way, that this is, this is how I started changing my thoughts about things, is reading her book, which I thought was awful. I was told I must read it. You know, so I thought, well, this is great. You know, I have something I could start doing the work or whatever it's called. Mm -hmm. So I started reading her book. It was horrible. It was not, as a writer, I'm sure you, if you've read it, you thought, mm -hmm. well, this is first of all written pretty terribly. And the associations she was making, analogies she was making were so far off base. Um, as somebody who's thought a lot about Jackie Robinson too, that she had a story about Jackie Robinson there and just was so far, so out of touch with what historical moments meant that that how I mean it just it sort of goes to show that you can if you have the right concepts the right concepts you're making the right noises it doesn't matter what you put out it doesn't matter the level of thought you're putting into something you'll just be on the right side of justice right it goes to show that you could be a great writer and a black man and speak against an ideology uh, she could be a terrible writer and a white woman speak on behalf of an ideology and somehow your intersectional roles have reversed. Um, yeah. I, that's uh, worth thinking about. I, uh, I haven't been shy in talking about D'Angelo, uh, in my writing. Um, uh, sorry, nothing personal, Robin D'Angelo, but, uh, <laughs> it, it's, I feel like it's a duty of mine to push back on some of the things you're saying. Um, yeah, it's uh you know if, if you if you're saying the right thing, if you're confirming people's biases, you know uh, you don't have to be a genius, you know you just have to do it often and loudly, hmm. right? And uh, you will be a hero. So how can I? What can I link people to? I'll put it up all in the show notes, um, either most recent or salient pieces of yours, including the website you mentioned, so that you know, this can be a head start, but then people can kind of do. Yes, uh, there's freeblackthought.com, um, and maybe I can, um, now, nah, that's easy to remember, freeblackthought. Yeah, I'll, I'll go over this, and I'll write them all. 
Uh, you can, uh, I have a couple pieces in Newsweek that address some of the things we talked about today, um, as well as uh, Quillette, um, Ario, and, um, and Persuasion. Um, the Persuasion piece, the manifesto for a free black thought was written collaboratively. Mm. Um, it's uh, written by me and some other uh, co-founders uh, of free black thought. The fact that they can't be named because they're afraid of the pushback. Mm. Says everything. Yeah, it right. does. They're, they're not tenured. They have more precarious situations. So, you know, um, although I said in the piece that this was a collaborative effort, only my name's up there, right? Because that's mm. how crazy things are right now. You know, so, uh, so yeah, just, uh, you know, just Google Eric Smith, I guess. I'll have people do that. I'll put links in the show notes too. And speaking of being anonymous in writing papers, have you have you heard about Peter Singer's uh, and, and others new organization? Um, it, it's a publication where people can submit scientific articles, yeah, and publish them uh, anonymously. What do you think about that? I mean, in some ways, I'm thinking, isn't that going the wrong direction? And in some ways, I'm thinking, well, I guess it's good that there's a way, an avenue to get critical thought out there. Um, it's it's good as a temporary thing. I don't think it. I don't think we should want to have that, you know, um, indefinitely. It's a stopgap, yeah. Yeah, it's a stopgap. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, that could that could actually do more harm than good, you know. Mm. Um, you know, if you think about it. But right now, yeah, yeah. Well, well, if you don't mind, I'm going to do a lot more thinking, reading, and discussing, and um, I, I'd love to talk again sometime in the near future when I've I've been able to wrap my mind around all of these things. But for now. I really appreciate you speaking with me, and so much appreciated. Thank you for the time you spent with me today. Uh, thanks for having me.